0: Stool's going to give me nightmares. We're going to put it over here. <laughs> Stool chases me sometimes at night in my dreams. Well, thank you for the, um, the book. Just so you know, William Grenall was one of the Puritans who um, wrote an exposition. The book is an exposition of Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 through 18. 800 pages of small print so he is a man after my own heart it's a very great work and it's just uh, thank you um it's been good ministering here God has just used us in great ways and we're thankful for that and you know we're, we're not planning on leaving so you know just so you know every time we go on vacation there's always these people you aren't leaving are you Not unless the elders tell me to. So anyways, but uh, it's been great and we're thankful for all the Lord has done in these last five years and uh, we'll give him all the glory. All right, today is our last sermon that we're going to be uh, answering your questions and I'm sorry that all this stuff went on because I can't even answer all the questions I have today, which is so sad, but there's always next summer. Uh, you know, if Christ doesn't come back and I'm still alive, next summer is a good opportunity to ask more questions, or you can just talk to any elder or pastor and and get your questions answered. You need to have your questions answered. So if uh, if I didn't if I don't get to them this morning, if they're not on that little sheet in the foyer, which talks about the questions you asked this year that I've already answered. Um, Make sure you get the answer. So the first question is this. What does Calvary Bible Church believe is the nature of Christ? And I'm going to rephrase the question to read this way. What does the Bible teach is the nature of Christ? Since these are supposed to be Bible questions. The Bible teaches that Jesus is both 100% God and 100% man, which means the Bible teaches Jesus has dual natures. He is a single person with dual natures, a human nature and a divine nature. Thomas Watson, in his book, A Body of Divinity, explains the dual natures of Christ with these words, quote, if the divine nature had been converted into the human or the human into the divine, there had been a change, but they were not so. The human nature was distinct from the divine. Therefore, there was no change. A cloud over the sun makes no change in the body of the sun. So, though the divine nature be clothed with the human, it makes no change in the divine nature. That's a good little illustration there to describe that when Jesus, um, or when God became a man in the person of Jesus Christ, he did not become less than God. He was clothed in humanity, and that's what is called the incarnation. The problem is it's hard to understand that. I mean, granted, I mean, who can figure that one out? Um, The Bible just says it's true. The classic definition of this dual natures of Christ in one person is called the hypostatic union. And uh, the word hypostatic or hypostasis comes from uh, a word which describes the melding of, not melding, but I guess the com- combination of two things into one existence, one hypostasis. And in 451, at the Council of Chalcedon... The church fathers got together and they studied all the scriptures which speak of Jesus, his deity, his humanity, and how these two things are brought together in one hypostasis or one substance, as uh, as what's going to be read here um, in the the version I'm giving you. Um, they come up with this comprehensive statement. And this is probably the most definitive and exact statement ever made. And uh, you could look at this, and if you know the scriptures well, you can see how every statement is very precise and very condensed. And this is what it says. Therefore, following the Holy Fathers, we all with one accord teach men to acknowledge one and the same Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, at once complete in Godhead and complete in manhood. Truly God and truly man consisting also of a reasonable soul and body of one substance with the father as regards his Godhead and at the same time of one substance with us. As regards his manhood, like us in all respects, apart from sin, as regards his Godhead, begotten of the father before the ages, but yet as regards his manhood, begotten for us men and for our salvation of Mary, the virgin, the God bearer. One and the same Christ, Son, Lord, only begotten, recognized in two natures without confusion, without change, without division, without separation, the distinction of natures being in no way annulled by the union, but rather the characteristics of each nature being preserved and coming together to form one person and subsistence or hypostasis. Not as parted or separated into two persons, but one and the same son, the only begotten God, the word, the Lord Jesus Christ, even as the prophets from earliest times spoke of him and our Lord Jesus Christ himself taught us and the creed of the fathers is handed down to us, end quote. So that is the great statement on the hypostatic union from the council of Chalcedon. It's not been improved upon. And so that's what the scriptures teach. Here is a related question. The Trinity, where does it state Jesus is God? The Holy Spirit, where does it state He is God? There is only one God. Jesus is the Son of God, not God. The Holy Spirit is not a person. This has been very confusing for me just as I think I understand it, I lose it. Well, this actually is three questions. Does the Bible teach Jesus is God? Does the Bible teach the Holy Spirit is God? And does the Bible teach the Holy Spirit is a person? And there are two correct statements. There is one God and Jesus is the son of God and two false statements. Jesus is not God and the Holy Spirit is not a person. Of course, When you look at all of these things, they all relate to what is called the Trinity that God, as I just explained, has decided to reveal himself to us in three distinct persons, which make up the one God of the Bible. Now, because of time, I'm only going to state what the scriptures teach, and we just don't have time to look at all the scriptures, but someone asked the questions, how do we know Jesus is God? Here are just a few of the reasons. Because the Bible teaches that the Lord God alone is to be worshipped. And Jesus is to be worshipped. The Bible teaches that the Lord God alone created everything. And Jesus created everything. The Lord God alone can forgive sins, Jesus forgives sins. The Lord God alone gives life, Jesus gives life. The Lord God alone is judge of the living and the dead, and Jesus is the judge of the living and the dead. The Lord God alone is redeemer, and Jesus is redeemer. The Lord God alone is savior, and Jesus is savior. The Lord God alone is eternal, Jesus is eternal. The Lord God alone is perfect in faithfulness, and Jesus is perfect in faithfulness. The Lord God alone is perfectly holy, and Jesus is perfectly holy. The Lord God alone is immutable, and Jesus is immutable. The Lord God alone is omnipresent, and Jesus is omnipresent. The Lord God alone is omniscient and Jesus is omniscient. The Lord God alone is perfect and Jesus is perfect. The Lord God alone is righteous and Jesus is righteous. The Lord God alone is sovereign and Jesus is sovereign. Jesus claimed to be the son of God and the Jews in his day understood that he was claiming equality with God. They say you being a man and they had that part right. Make yourself out to be equal with God and they had that part right too. Jesus claimed to be greater than the temple. In the Jewish thinking of the day, only one person was greater than the temple, God. Jesus claimed to be Lord of the Sabbath, and the Lord of the Sabbath is the Lord God. If you examine Old Testament prophecies, that is, you look at the Hebrew in texts which speak of Christ, it uses names such as Jehovah, Adonai, Elohim, Emmanuel, God, I Am, and the Lord to describe Jesus prophecies about the messiah tell us the messiah is the lord god that jesus is the son of god and that the son of god is the lord god and that the son of man is the lord god In addition to that, the Lord God is the first and last, and Jesus is the first and last, and the Lord God is the Alpha Omega, and Jesus is the Alpha and Omega. And not only that, when you look, start looking at different texts, you see that there are many texts which clearly teach by implication or just direct reference that Jesus is God. I mean, besides the texts that just say he's God, there are those two. I'll just give you two kind of examples, and when you study the New Testament, especially in interacting with the Old Testament, you come across a lot of texts like this. You remember when G- Judas betrayed Jesus? He betrayed him for what? Thirty pieces of silver. Yeah. And Matthew and Matthew um, <clears throat> three describe, or uh, Matthew twenty-three describes what happens. And he says this is a fulfillment of Zechariah 11, verses 12 and 13. And Zechariah 11:13, if you look at the context, it says this. Then the Lord, now just stop there. Who is the Lord? Well, whenever you're reading your Old Testament and you see capital L, Lowercase capital ORD. The reason it's there is to let you know that it's not using the word Adonai, it's using the ineffable tetragrammaton. Okay, the ineffable tetragrammaton, ineffable means unutterable, tetragrammaton is the four-letter name. It's listing the unutterable four-letter name, the ineffable tetragrammaton, Yahweh, Jehovah, the I Am. It is the memorial name that God gave to Moses in Exodus 3.14 when God told Moses, when Moses said, well, who shall I say sent me? Tell them that I Am sent you. There it is, the ineffable tetragrammaton. So it uses, it says, then the Lord, ineffable tetragrammaton, Said to me, throw it to the potter, that magnificent price at which I was valued by them. Really? The Lord God, Jehovah, was sold for 30 pieces of silver? Yep. I thought Jesus was. Yep. If you were to look at John 1.3, never mind that verses 1 and 2 says Jesus is the word and the word is God. But you look at verse 3, it says this, All things came into being through him, and apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. Or Colossians 1-16 says, For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. In other words, Jesus created everything. And then, Genesis 1-1 says, In the beginning, created the heavens and the earth. Yeah. Everybody knows that, and you go, well, that that's that. The word God there is Elohim; it's not the Lord. Well, then all you got to do is look at Exodus twenty verse eleven, or Exodus thirty-one seventeen, or First Chronicles sixteen twenty-six, or Psalm ninety-six verse five, which says that the Lord ineffable tetragrammaton, the Lord God created the heavens and the earth and all they contain. Well, I thought Jesus did; he did. I thought the Lord God did. He did. Well, how could that be? Jesus is the Lord God. As simple as can be. There are hundreds of examples like that. To t- say that Jesus is not God is a false statement. It's actually what is called the Arian heresy. Arius was a man who lived in Alexandria in 318 AD, and he taught that Jesus wasn't God. The Aryan heresy is the same heresy taught by Jehovah's Witnesses today. And it is a damning doctrine. Jesus said in John 8, 24, Therefore I said to you that you will die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. That's what he said to the unbelieving Pharisees. And if you look at the text, if you have a little translation of the Bible, you'll see that the he there is in italics. And the reason it's in italics is because it's not even in the text. The text literally reads, unless you believe that I am the ego and me, you will die in your sins. If you don't believe I am Yahweh, the memorial name of God, you will die in your sins. And that is a very serious thing. Moving on. Does the Bible teach that the Holy Spirit is God? Answer? Yes, the Holy Spirit is described in the scriptures as omnipotent, omniscient, omnipresent, eternal, things that only God possesses. The Holy Spirit can be blasphemed, To blaspheme is to speak against God, speak evil about God. The Holy Spirit is one with the Father and Son. To lie to the Holy Spirit is to lie to God. The Holy Spirit saves people, has the power over demons, knows the future, raises the dead, moves men to write the Bible. When the Holy Spirit speaks, God speaks. For instance, if you look at Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34, when it talks about the new covenants, four times in that context it says, declares the Lord, declares the Lord, declares the Lord. Yahweh Yodhe, the ineffable tetragrammaton. And when that text is translated in Hebrews 10, verses 15 and 16, it says, the Holy Spirit says. Well, which one is it? Both. Why? Because the Holy Spirit is the Lord God. You look at Hebrews 3, 7, it says, the Holy Spirit says, and quotes Psalm 95, in Psalm 95, David is quoting Exodus 17, 7. And God is speaking. So who is it? The Holy Spirit? Yes. The Lord God? Yes. The scriptures teach that the Holy Spirit moved men to write the Bible. And what is the Bible? The Word of God. Some wrongly teach the Holy Spirit is not a person. You know, it's some sort of force, some sort of, you know, power of God. But it's not a person. Well, first of all, you have to say, you know, what is a person? G. Campbell Morgan in his work, understanding the Holy Spirit writes, God alone is, per, is, has perfect personality. Four things are contained within the realm of personality. Will, intelligence, power, and capacity for love. A person is a being who can be approached, trusted, or doubted, loved, or hated, adored, or insulted. End quote. You know, if the Holy Spirit's like electricity, can, does electricity love you? Does it have a will? Does it think, oh, I'm going to do this. I'm going to move so-and-so to do this. No. The Holy Spirit has all the qualities of personhood. The Bible says the Holy Spirit has a mind. There's the wisdom of the Spirit, the counsel of the Spirit, the knowledge of the Spirit. You can grieve the, the, the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit intercedes for us, directs us, gives us spiritual gifts according to His will. The Holy Spirit strives with men, teaches men, brings to remembrance the things that they have learned before, bears witness, convicts, helps us, washes us, sanctifies us, justifies us, saves us, can be blasphemed, spoken against, lied to, insulted, and resisted. Why? Because the Holy Spirit is a person. Electricity doesn't do these things. John Walvoord in his work, The Holy Spirit said, The most tangible and conclusive evidence for the personality of the Holy Spirit is found in his works. The very character of his works makes it impossible to interpret the scriptures properly without assuming his personality. All the works of the Holy Spirit are such that personality is required. The scriptures also use masculine pronouns, he and him. And all of this brings us back to the Trinity, and don't think that God the Father, some, you know, kind of plays different roles and gets schizophrenic. He's not doing that. God the Father is not the Holy Spirit of Christ. The Holy Spirit is not God the Father of Christ. Christ is not God the Father of Holy Spirit. There are three distinct persons in the Scripture, and yet they make up the one God. You see the Trinity being spoken of or alluded to in texts like Genesis one twenty six, where God says, let us make man in our image. What's this us thing? Why doesn't God say, let me, or I will? How come he says, let us, and uses the plural there? You see the same thing in Genesis eleven seven 7, when The people were disobeying God. They're going to build the big tower, the Tower of Babel. And God says, let us go down and confuse their language. What is that about? The word Elohim, which is used of God thousands of times in the Old Testament, is a masculine plural word. In other words, in Hebrew, you have an, you usually put the ending on the word that matches. If it's singular, it's a singular ending. The, the em ending in Elohim is plural. Why is that? Well, I think it's alluding to the Trinity. More specifically, there are over 60 texts in the New Testament which mention the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit together. 60 of them texts like the great commission go make disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of the father son and holy spirit and the word name there when it says baptizing them in the name it's not plural names it's singular name it's in the one name of the father son and holy spirit second corinthians 13 14 reads the grace of the lord jesus christ and the love of god and the fellowship of the holy spirit be with you all all three there, Titus three, four through six says, but when the kindness of God, our savior and his love for mankind appeared, he saved us not on the basis of deeds, which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy spirit whom he poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ, our savior. Well, who was it? God, our savior, the Holy spirit, our savior, or Jesus, our savior. Yes. Now let me just stress one more time. You reject the deity of the Holy Spirit or the deity of Christ, you are not saved. It's a damning doctrine. You must believe in the correct Jesus in order to be saved. You believe in Jesus just a man? That is the wrong Jesus. He cannot save you. Now, if you want more information on the deity of Christ, the humanity of Christ, the hypostatic union, the personhood of the Holy Spirit the deity of the Holy Spirit these things and call the office and if you want just a basic shallow treatment you can get the basic Bible doctrine series on Christ or the Holy Spirit and there's verses in there and you can look them all up or if you want a little bit more heavy duty treatment you can ask for the three lessons in the doctrine of Christ series one lesson only on hypostatic union one lesson only on deity 11 pages fine print of lots and lots of verses to look up and there's just some of them um mentioned it's not comprehensive and then you can you know look up the deity humanity all that stuff of I have lessons and everything so you can just call up and just study to your hearts content. Third, chastisement, punishment, burdens and sufferings are actions given to us as Christians to be closer to God. My question is, are we allowed any joy without fear that if we are not suffering, we are not close to God? Of course. See, this is, first of all, you need to realize that God does send trials our way so that we learn to cling to him. Usually, when we're healthy, when things are going good, when we're prosperous, men normally and naturally forget to trust in God. It's just normal to think, you know, I've got everything I need because I have lots of things of the world and I have my health. That is the same argument that Satan used against job the only reason he worships you is because you have given him these things which in the history of world people who have lots of things don't worship god and then he said well no because uh, he kept worshiping the only reason he worships you is because you have given him his health so he took away that and he still worshiped god but most people when they're healthy wealthy and wise don't trust god and so god brings trials into their life because he would rather have you clinging to him and trusting in him in trial and tribulation than to not cling to him in prosperity. So we'll just say, acknowledge that that is true. But the scriptures give us a lot a lot of other reasons for why trials come. For instance, trials come because God wants us to go through them so that he can reward us for persevering under trials. Not only that, it's how we partake in the sufferings of christ did christ die for you did he suffer for you well then what's wrong with you suffering for him in his cause luke says we suffer luke 26 22 and 23 says when we suffer for doing what is right we find ourselves in the company of the prophets of old in Luke 12 and 14 and 21, it talks about suffering and, and being rejected and having relationships, you know, father against uh, mother and daughter and brother and sister, the, you know, the men's, uh, a man's uh, enemies will be the members of his own household. Why? Why? Because God wants you to demonstrate to the world that nothing and no one is as important as he is. He wants you to take a stand and love him and choose him over other men. And so sometimes trials come in that way. Trials come because we're in a spiritual battle. 2 Corinthians 10, 3 through 6, Ephesians chapter 6, 12 says we are in the spiritual battle, and when you're in a battle, you hurt. It's hard. And so sometimes we suffer because of that. James 1, 2 through 4 says trials produce endurance and help us to be perfect, complete, lacking in nothing. Peter in 1 Peter 2, 20 and 21 says we are called to suffer for Christ's sake again so we can partake in his sufferings. 1 Peter 5, 9 through 10 tells us suffering is one of the ways God perfects, confirms, strengthens and establishes us. Do you want that? Then you got to deal with the suffering. Not only that, we suffer because we're sinners you know, just just try this when you're going out today, you know, put your hand in the car door and slam it on there. (laughs) See if it hurts. And then when it hurts, you tell yourself that was dumb. That's right. That was dumb. And when you sin, that's dumb. And sin has painful consequences. You do things that are wrong. You're going to suffer the consequences, painful consequences. And God has built that into sin. And so we're in this sin-cursed world. Other sinners are sinning, and they do things to us. We do things to ourselves. God does it for trials, to bless us, to build character into us, all these things. Having said that, of course, we are allowed joy without suffering. Of course we are. God gives us all kinds of things to joy and just to have a great time with. Um, 1 Timothy 6.17 says, Instruct those who are rich in this present world not to be conceited or to fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. Notice what he does not say. He doesn't say, Give away your riches, make a vow of poverty, quit making money, and be poor and happy. He says, listen, if you're rich in this present world, just don't be conceited. Remember who gave you those riches. Don't fix your hope on those riches. Fix your hope on God. Remember, he is the one who supplied you with all these things. Enjoy them. Uh, Enjoy what? Plasma TVs. (laughs) Some of the guys are going, see, I told you, honey. (laughs) Cars, you know, computers and hobbies and books and spouses and children and food and all of that stuff that he gives us. All of that is to be enjoyed. Yes, enjoy it. Enjoy it. When I used to fly fish, I would spend all day long from first light to dark fishing. And usually I'd fish all by myself. Yeah, I'm one of those people that I love fishing so much. I just go all day by myself. I didn't go for the social aspect of it. I went for the fellowship with the fish. <laughs> and... Uh, I just love the river and the bugs and I just love being out there all day. And so I would build my own rod and this one rod that I really like, I, I put a verse reference on there. So every time I would cast, I could see this reference. It's James one seventeen. Every good thing and every perfect gift is from above coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. All good things. All good things. All good things. All day long. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, enjoy what God gives you, but don't sin to enjoy it. Enjoy it all, but don't make an idol out of it or neglect what is mandated to do what is optional. Keep your priorities right. Enjoy everything. God gives you it. All those good gifts come down from him. Four, can a Christian be afraid to die? And again, we need to reword the question because you can ask you can you get to take this question a couple different ways one way is the question is asking is it possible for Christians to be afraid to die and of course the answer to that is of course the second way is it okay with god that our christians are afraid to die and of course the answer to that is no so why i mean why not be afraid to die well, Jesus said in Luke 12, 4 through 7, these words, I say to you, my friends, do not be afraid of those who kill the body. After that, what more can they do? But I will warn you whom to fear. Fear the one who, after he has killed, has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Are not five sparrows sold for two cents? Yet not one of them is forgotten before God. Indeed, the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Do not fear. You are more valuable than many sparrows. The point is, listen, God's going to take care of you, and even if you die, he's going to take care of you, so don't be afraid. Listen to what David said in Psalm 118, verses 6 and 7. The Lord is for me. I will not fear. What can man do to me? The Lord is for me among those who help me. Therefore, I will look with satisfaction on those who hate me. David, of course, said in Psalm 23, the classic line, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why? Because you're with me, your rod and staff, they comfort me. Listen, we learned last week, right, that to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. So, I mean, what are you scared of? Perfect happiness? Peace, no sin, total forgiveness, being in the presence of Christ and the angels without sin, blessed for all eternity. Now, well, what is it? There's only two reasons that you're going to be scared as a Christian. One is, is you either don't know what the Bible says, and now I told you, so you have no excuse. Or two, you know what the Bible says, and you refuse to believe it. You just don't want to believe that Heaven and the glories of eternity are waiting for you where God in omnipotence will bend his will to lavish upon you the riches of his grace for all eternity. And you just don't want to believe it. And that's sin. The cure of this is to get into the Bible and find out what it says and to be encouraged. And again, there's another study you can get from the office called the Doctrine of Heaven Study. And you can read up all about heaven. If you want a good book, The Glory of Heaven by John MacArthur would be a good book. It would be easy to read and just get really encouraging. Heaven's a great place. Five, are Christians supposed to believe every word of the Bible? (laughs) Moving on. (laughs) Yes. Uh, And uh, I usually, uh, you know, again, I'm not quite sure what's behind the question here, but... uh, This is not to say, when you say yes, you're supposed to believe the Bible, that does not mean that everything in the Bible is a mandate for you to do. You know, David committed adultery, so I commit adultery, okay? That's not what we're saying, okay? When we say yes, every bit of the Bible is true, what we're saying is, is it's all accurate. That is, when it records sins, it records sins accurately. When it records history, it records history accurately, that all of it is the word of God and all of it has a purpose and all of it is for our training. And a lot of it has to do with, well, you know, you hear people say things like this. Well, you know, I don't know if I could be a Christian. And there's so many translations and transliterations of the Bible. Oh, really? You've studied that quite a bit, have you? Tell me about it. (laughs) And usually they've never studied it. They don't know anything about translations, transliterations, or where the Bible came from. They base their whole eternal existence... And the possibility of burning in hell for eternity on something that they just throw out there. It's a smokescreen. Listen, if you do study translations and transliterations, you will discover that the Bible alone, unequaled of all the ancient books of history, is the most definitively sure and accurate book ever written. Beyond a shadow of a doubt. That is that you can compare it to the Iliad or the Odyssey or the works of Josephus or any of the great ancient histories, and we have thousands of copies that agree, ancient old copies and fragments that agree, and people quote those works and other ancient works and they agree. You put it all together and the Bible is just absolutely certain, and if you want to learn more about this, there just happens to be a whole series on this you can get from the office. It's not the basic Bible doctrine. It's called the Doctrine of the Bible series. We talk about ancient manuscripts, errors, disagreements in the manuscripts. We talk about early English versions of King James controversy. You know, all of that stuff is all in there. You can get it. It's, it's been recorded. It's written down. If you want some more books, if you want just kind of a general, light, easy treatment, here's a book. It's called How We Got Our Bible by Lightfoot. It's simple. It's easy to understand. If you want something a little bit more heavy duty, you can get a general Introduction to the Bible by Geisler and Nix. If you want something a little bit more, it's The Origin of the Bible by Comfort, or another really excellent book just about a history of the English Bible is by Leland Riken called The Word of God in English. And they're all excellent works, but yeah, Christians are supposed to believe every word of the Bible. Six, what is the difference between being tested and being punished? Well, the scriptures talk about God testing believers. God tests believers to give them an opportunity to obey, and when you read, for instance, in texts like Exodus sixteen four, Deuteronomy eight two, Judges two twenty two or three one or three four. Or text like that, Um, Psalm 66.10 tells us uh, why God does this. For you have tried us or tested us, O God. You have refined us as silver is refined. Testing is God putting a circumstance in your way, having given you all the knowledge you need, all the grace you need, to make sure you have an opportunity to obey. So if you pray something like this, and you know, Lord, help me to be godly, he's going to. He's going to do that. He's going to bring trials your way. He's going to bring obstacles. He's going to bring persecution. He's going to make you go through the gauntlet until you die. Why? Because that's how he trains you. I mean, you don't learn how to, you know, fence with the sword by just talking about it. You have to fence. And the longer you fence then the better you get and you have to fence with people who are better than you are to get better you know that don't you well if you want to in, in you know uh, my wife signed me up for tennis lessons um <laughs> so our whole family's doing this so the problem is i'm trying to hold back you know and the, and the guy says you need to quit holding back you know you need to play with somebody who's better than you are which you know is pretty easy to find Um, why because that's how you excel and so this is what happens in your life God will bring tests in your life and he starts them out easy and as you grow in the Lord they get harder and harder and harder and harder and harder until you die and he keeps bringing you you blow it then he brings you another one of that magnitude and he keeps doing it until you learn and that's how he trains us so yes um, there is that and we have to you know, go through the testing of the Lord. Discipline is a whole nother thing. Discipline or punishment or chastisement is when we do what is wrong and then God brings some sort of painful consequences to us to teach us not to do that anymore. Proverbs three, eleven and twelve says, My son do not reject the discipline of the Lord or loathe his reproof, for whom the Lord loves, he reproves, even as a father corrects the son in whom he delights. The author of Hebrew quotes that same text and then goes on to say this in Hebrews twelve, eleven through seven it is for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as sons, for what son is there whom his father does not discipline? To those who have been trained by it, afterwards it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. God wants to make you righteous. And yeah, it's never pleasant going through the discipline of the Lord, but it's for your good. Just like earthly fathers will discipline their children, so God, being the perfect father, disciplines his children. He does it by sickness, by circumstances, by trial, through other people, all kinds of things. He brings them our way and gives us what we need to grow in Him. Finally, this is a short one. What is the meaning of Jesus washing the disciples' feet? Does it apply to us? What is the meaning of believers imitating that action, and how can we do like Christ did? Well, in John thirteen, Jesus is getting ready to die. Has everyone in the upper room, and he does something unimaginable, so unimaginable that Peter says, "You shall never wash my feet." In that culture. To wash somebody's feet was something slaves did. You walked around and you got all this dirt in your feet. So a lot of times you go, they have the basin and the servants there would wash their feet off for you. So you'd have clean feet. Jesus in the upper room, though he is Lord, though he is master, though he is God incarnate, humbles himself and does a very menial task, which they all knew was something that, listen, I mean, we're just fishermen and we don't do that. Well, that was Jesus' whole point. Jesus was giving them an example of what it means to be a servant leader. He was giving them an example of servanthood. He wasn't making a perpetual foot washing ordinance. He was letting us know that we all need to serve others. I don't care what your social status is. I don't care you know, how big a company you manage. I don't care how much money you make and what kind of car you drive. You need to serve other people. Even in the lowest ways, you need to help people move. You need to give people rides. You need to give people counsel. You need to help mow lawns of widow ladies or change light bulbs for them or whatever it is. We humble ourselves to serve each other. And so in doing that, you're being like Jesus. And that's what Jesus taught us. He teaches over and over in the Gospels. You want to be great? in the kingdom of heaven, then you become the servant of all. And he says, that's how you become great. And there's two other questions, which you'll never hear answered (laughs) till maybe next year. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your goodness to us, for loving us and taking care of us. We thank you for your word, which gives us everything pertaining to life and godliness. Father, I pray that each of us here would be diligent students of your word. We would search out the scriptures with diligence and learn what it means to know you and live for you. And Father, I pray that if there's anyone here who doesn't know the Lord Jesus Christ, who's never repented of their sins and placed their faith in Christ alone to save them, that right now, as they hear me, that your spirit would come upon them and they would come to the end of themselves And cry out in mercy to you in their hearts. And Father, that you would save them and transform them and make them new. Help them to believe that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. That he died and rose again to demonstrate his love. And Father, may you change them and transform them. For the rest of us, may we leave here encouraging one another. And all the more as we see the day drawing near. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.